So, again this evening, I would like to continue to talk about meditation practice. The last couple of weeks, the topic has been several of the states which can arise spontaneously or be cultivated in practice through attention and care uh, with one's mind and one's heart, loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy, just talking about how we can learn about those states and equanimity. This week I want to shift more to talking directly about the practice of awareness and paying attention rather than the cultivation of states, the understanding of the states of heart and mind. Do you know the poetry of T.S. Eliot, probably his most well-known lines from the last portion of his quartets, where he says, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Most everyone has heard those lines. And it goes on, and it's a wonderful poem, and, and a series of poems, and worth rereading. In a way, the practice of mindfulness or awareness in sitting practice or in our daily life is just that straightforward and simple. It's to come back to where we are, to, to live in the reality of the present and to know what is here, sometimes for the first time. Last week I also talked a bit about death. If you recall, I mentioned a client who had come and done a, a a ceremony for their mother and uh, was given the ashes and the, the kind of struggle that they had holding this bag of ashes and thinking of their mother at the same time and trying to come to terms with the brevity of life and with the inevitability of change and of death. When we remember that things change, when we can see it, in front of us from a moment to another moment to a day, it affects deeply the way that we live. If we know that things are really fleeting, it brings a quality or a care to, to our attention to know where we are because we realize that this may be the only time, in fact it is the only time that we'll be in this day, in this moment, in this circumstance. So one tends to live less automatically if we remember the fact of change and of impermanence and of death. Now there's a particular quality in the teachings of the Buddha that's often linked with mindfulness or awareness as one phrase. The word in Sanskrit or Pali for awareness is sati. And the word that goes with it is sampajanya. It's often said sati sampajanya. And the word sampajanya is translated as clear comprehension or clear seeing. And it has several meanings. And the reason that it's linked with attention, you'll, you'll understand as I speak of it. 
It means to be aware of what's here and to see it for what it is, to see the context within which this moment is happening. That context, or clear comprehension, has, has three different aspects. The first is the ethical context, or to put it another way, the integrity with which we are living in this particular moment. Not just to be aware of what's present, but in that awareness to have a sense of our being and our body and our heart and our actions and sense whether we are living with integrity. That is, whether we are living what we know, whether we are living and acting what we value. That's the first part of clear comprehension. And there is a strange and wonderful kind of beauty and strength that comes even in difficulty, even in doing terribly hard things, if it is connected with our integrity. Do you know what I mean? Even when things are very difficult, if that quality of clear comprehension that we know this is connected with our deeper values, we can do very, very difficult things, and it's fine. Now, one of the contexts that I'll use to explain it tonight will be the eating meditation. Those of you who have done classes or retreats or had instruction in the practice know the old chewing the raisins in the way that we teach eating meditation. How many people have not gone through the eating meditation instruction, just to know? Aha. Uh -huh. They'll have to come to either beginning class. I brought raisins, but I don't think I'll do it tonight. I think I'll do a, I'll do a whole thing another night on eating. Not just the instructions, but a whole elaboration. But we'll, we'll use it as an example. There is a meditation that we teach as part of every retreat and every series of classes of becoming mindful of eating. And I'll use it as an example tonight in explaining clear comprehension. Now, in an ethical basis, it's not so much how you eat, as, as one of my teachers said, it's not what goes in the mouth that matters so much, but what comes out of it. <laughs> so it's not getting some food trip, so to say, or some perfection of how one should eat, but rather looking at our actions, as I said, whether they're speaking or relating to other people, or our livelihood, or whatever part of our life, and listening with our awareness to see if those actions are in line with our integrity. In terms of eating, there might be a few ethical principles for people to not harm other beings, so that depending on your sensibility or your sensitivity, it can be arranged. For some people, it means not eating certain kinds of tuna fish because they kill dolphins, or not eating table grapes because there's a strike of uh, farm workers due to the level of pesticide poisoning for hundreds and thousands of people who pick food, but also, guess who else? All the people who eat the products that are made with that. And so it's not just for us, but a, in some way a caring for other people, at least to pay attention to that. Or factory farming and the ways that 
chickens and eggs and all kinds of things are raised often now in this country. And I don't mean to go on a whole elaborate thing about food and say what you should eat or what you shouldn't. My diet is nothing much to speak of. Um, and I, I have probably as many hamburgers as I have anything else, at least at some times. Um, but I don't eat fast food hamburgers much anymore after, <laughs> not only after several stomach aches, but also after reading about uh, rainforests and, what ha and the, the cultivation of cattle in Central and South America by cutting down rainforests to provide food, I mean beef for McDonald's at 10 cents a pound low or whatever. The point of it is that the first aspect of clear seeing and awareness is seeing whether our actions, whether it's eating or speaking or driving or our livelihood or our family work, is in line with our higher values, in line with what, what we really care about, especially when we remember our death and we remember that it's a short dance. In a sense, it's attention to whether our actions are harming other beings or not. And when you become aware of it, it gets much harder to do. We can only do it when we're not really aware of the pain it causes. Now, the second aspect of clear comprehension is called suitability. And that focuses more on attention to oneself rather than attention to whether we're harming others. So in terms of diet again, it might be what our body needs, what kind of diet is fitting for us, the, the amount of exercise we get, the climate we live in, taking care with this vehicle or this vessel, if you will, that we are given to live and share and awaken in, in our life. So this isn't so much ethicality, but it's, it's a sensitivity to, our, to ourselves and our life. When we were monks, every day we would go out and collect food in our alms bowl, and there was a series of reflections we would do before eating each time. Part of those reflections were of gratitude, gratitude for receiving food, gratitude for having that to eat which other people who are hungry don't. It was an amazing experience, and I've talked about it at other sittings, to be able to go out with a bowl in the morning and to be given food in, in a country where it's not really begging because monks and nuns are really deeply revered, and people will wait in the villages. Sometimes they'll wait on their knees with their hands together like uh, they were praying, and they'll offer the best of the food they have. And it's an extraordinary thing to go barefoot just as the sun is coming up and walk a few miles across rice paddies because most of the monasteries are out in the rural areas and then go to some village. It's, it's like turning the clock back 2,000 years um, and walk through a village street barefoot and have people wait and offer you rice or curry or whatever they have and you learn not to be too picky about your food. Someday it's water chestnuts and, 
and uh, fish curry, and someday it's water buffalo stew, because that's what they have, and someday it's beautiful vegetarian cooking, and someday it's mostly rice, and uh, not much else. And you learn a lot just going through that process. But part of what's wonderful about it is that it puts you in a relationship of, of tremendous gratitude. And part of the reflection, as I said, is, is of gratitude for receiving it. But the other part of the reflection is what is its purpose? Why do we bother asking food of other people or eating? And the reflection that's done is we nourish ourselves in order to give sustenance so that we can grow in wisdom and compassion, so that our heart can be nourished. We nourish the body so that we can then nourish the spirit. In, it, in a sense, it's not living to eat, but eating to live, and to live in the deepest sense of living our values. So clear comprehension, first part, is being aware of whether it's harming other people or integrity. The second is being aware of its suitability for ourselves. Being aware of the action that we take, whether it's food or speaking or how we drive or what we drive or what we do for work or all kinds of aspects of our life, where we live, how we take care of the, the surroundings of our house or our community how that affects us and what kind of life that's shaping. Now the third part of Sampajanya and the most, uh, the part that's most connected with the silent inner meditation of sitting practice is the comprehension or the seeing of the process of experience. When you become aware in a moment, you're aware of a sound or a sight or certain feelings that arise or a thought, you recognize what's there. That's what awareness means, to see what's here. To see it clearly also is to recognize its nature. And if you look at your feelings or your thoughts or your ideas or your opinions or your physical sensations or sounds or whatever experience it is, and you see what it is and observe it for a little while, you also see that it changes. So to see it clearly is to know what's present, but also to begin to feel its rhythm, its movement, its change, the fact of its impermanence. And through that to get a sense of the changing flow of all of our life. Now this is really important when one wants to learn about the nature of mind and feelings. See if I can find, there's a quote here from the Buddha in this current inquiring mind. If I can find it in here. Not yet. This is the Buddha saying, how does one contemplate the nature of mind? Herein, a monk or nun sits down and pays attention and knows the fearful mind is fearful, the mind that's grasping as the grasping mind, 
the mind that's free of fear as a mind free of fear, or the heart that's free of grasping as a heart free of grasping, the mind filled with hatred as hating, the mind or heart free of hatred as free of hatred, the mind deluded or lost as deluded, the heart free of delusion as undeluded, the heart or mind as contracted or open. This is from the Sutra on the Development of Mindfulness. So what practice is about is beginning to see what is here, to know it, to know when it's contracted, to know when it's open, to know when there's fear, to know when there's peace, to begin to know what our experience is and to observe and learn the laws which govern it or its process. Now, being aware, when you do the eating meditation, we, when we pass the raisins around, you start to see in a very simple way this process. For example, we'll give people raisins and say, all right, now, before you eat, become aware of what you feel. And if they're hungry, they'll sit and look at them, and you'll notice the arising of hunger. And most people have never really paid attention to hunger. It drives much of humanity, much of our own lives, desire, wanting, hunger, and yet we spend our time trying to fill ourselves or fulfill it, but rarely do we stop and say, what does hunger feel like? What's it like in the belly? What's it like in the body? What's it like as a state of the mind or the heart? So this first part of eating meditation is just to sit there and not eat at all and see what it's like to become aware of hunger and make some peace with it, come to some understanding of it. Then people start to eat, chew the raisins generally. After just one mouthful, I'll ask for people's comments. And inevitably, someone will raise their hand and say, those were amazing, those raisins. They were so full of flavor. What did you put in them? We put a little LSD in the raisins or something. It makes them really... And what it is is that for that moment, with their eyes closed, really paying attention, they were here. What makes the raisins so fantastic is that there was somebody here to taste them. <laughs> and we could go out to one of the hundred or thousand gourmet restaurants of Marin County. You know, now there's cuisine from everywhere, Vietnamese Cajun cuisine and... <laughs> northern Greek Chinese specialty shops and all these amazing things. And you go and you have a wonderful meal and you're busy talking with somebody and thinking about stuff and whatever. In the end, you're still hungry because you really didn't taste it. So the first part of it is just to be present. Then inevitably what happens is people are doing the eating meditation. They'll chew the raisins or pay attention and There'll be this big burst of flavor. And then if you look yourself, if you haven't done it, you'll find this out. After you chew things for a little while, the flavor tends to fade. But then you still have to chew them to get it ready to swallow. There's a long period like a cow of kind of chewing your cud. And then you swallow. And if I watch, and I like to watch sometimes when people are meditating, that's my job, right? And... Um, I'll see people chewing a little bit, and then their hand will reach down and put more raisins in, like this. And it's clear they haven't even finished the first bite. 
And what happens often is you chew and you get a nice burst of flavor, and then you chew in a little more and the flavor's gone. You haven't swallowed yet. And automatically the hand reaches out and stuffs some more in there so you get another burst of flavor. It's to get the pleasure to last as much as you can. Have you ever recognized that in your life? <laughs> and that's, that's, in one bite, you can get the whole of Buddhist psychology. <laughs> you see that the pleasant states are rising and then the desire and the attachment are wanting more and the trying to sustain it by stuffing more raisins in and so forth. You also see the whole process of change if you look closely, how the raisins which are certain, the, the basic elements of hardness or softness or heat or temperature, as you chew them, the whole physical world changes about them. Then at the end of that process, I'll ask people to pay attention when they go and do the eating meditation in a meal to the end of the meal. You could do this at home this week, even if you've never done eating meditation. When you finish chewing and tasting and having your meal, then listen to the different voices which arise and tell you when to stop eating. There'll be a half dozen of them. Your belly will often speak first and say, had enough, that's just fine, comfortable. Then your tongue might say, uh-uh, that stuff there's really good, let's have a little more of that. And your eyes will say, yeah, we haven't even tried that over there. And then maybe some voice in your mind will say, um, you shouldn't eat too much, you know. And then your mother will come along and she'll say, you should finish everything on your plate. And you'll hear your stomach and your tongue and your eyes and your opinions about your weight and your mother and probably a couple of other voices as well. And what becomes important in that practice of awareness is not to say which voice to listen to. You should always follow your mother or your belly or your tongue or whatever. If you follow any of those completely, you'll get in trouble. <laughs> but rather, it's to be present enough, to be aware enough to start to hear those voices, to be aware of what's going on and see which one you follow. Which of those are you listening to? And then as you get more aware, you start to see the suitability. Is that the most skillful voice? Is that the voice that, that I might best follow? But you can't know that until you become aware of what you are feeling and what's going on. A lot of the therapy work that I do, my therapy practice involves working with people generally who have a spiritual practice already, but they come in and there are areas that their meditation, whether it's Zen or Sufi or Vipassana or whatever, hasn't helped them with so much, and so they, they're looking for some other ways to become aware. And a good part of that therapy practice has to do with becoming aware of their feelings, becoming aware of what's going on and what are those voices inside, whether it's their mother or their stomach or their judgment, judging mind or, or their eyes or some opinion that they've heard, and what they feel about things. To become aware of feelings in meditation is really central. And one can do that through the process 
that we work with in this practice of giving a name or a label to things. You can sit and there arises sadness. You note sad, sad, or there arises happiness. And you note happy, happy, or peaceful, or angry. You begin to recognize the states of the heart and mind. It's the same word in Sanskrit, as they arise. And when you do that, it becomes possible to live in a very different way. Now, one thing to say about this, which I've mentioned at many retreats, is that if you become aware of your feelings, they don't last very long. We feel like we're angry for a day or sad for a week or happy for a, uh, for a month or a certain period or grieving for a while as if those feelings lasted that long. But if you look closely and you let yourself feel what's here and pay attention, feelings rarely last more than 30 seconds, maybe a minute, and then they turn into something else, sometimes just 5 or 10 seconds. Guaranteed. If you have some feeling that feels like it's lasted a much longer than that, you haven't paid attention to it. One thing that's helpful in doing that is to be able to track your feelings, which is to say, to be aware of what's present, that's the awareness part, and to know its beginning and its end. And to track it means just to pay attention until you notice that it's turned into some other feeling which is to give it a, one good way is to give it a label and see if it lasts five or 10 or 15 labels long. And if you really feel it and pay attention, it will turn into something else because the very practice of paying attention allows things to open. It's a process. Attention is a process of opening. Now, there's a lot that we don't want to feel that we're unable to, or our habit is that we avoid, or that's scary, or that's difficult. And there's hunger, and loss, and grief, and shame, and guilt, and sorrow, and self-judgment, and anger, and fear. For some people, the pleasant ones are scary. Pleasure is hard to feel, or delight, or being in love. That's scary for certain people. There's a whole part of a range of our being that we're not so aware of, and yet they're very important. Without becoming aware of them, we can't live in a wise way. I've been reading it, some of these talks, some excerpts from this book called The Wall, which is letters and offerings and images that were left at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington. And it's a very powerful and moving book. The memorial has become a place where people leave things, and they go to cry and grieve and come to terms with a very difficult and, for many of them, terrible aspect of their life, people who've lost loved ones and family members and friends. But it's also become a place in some way of hope for people because it's become a place that they can come to terms with what they feel. On the back is this picture of a man carrying a sign and wearing some old green fatigues 
that says, I'm a Vietnam veteran. I like the memorial, <clears throat> and if it makes it difficult to send people into battle again, I'll like it even more. <clears throat> but I want to read you two things from this, if I may. These are letters that are left by people who go there, or notes, or, or packages, or medals that are put on there and saying, this medal isn't for me, but it's for you who died. You and I were not friends while you were alive. We weren't very close anyway, but then we were only kids. Still, I came today to honor your sacrifice. I came for Kathy and for your parents, and also for the man you would have grown to be, a man I would have liked. The kid I remember probably wouldn't have cared much for these flowers from my garden, but the man you could have been would appreciate them. The Indian blanket and purple sage are native to Texas, and there are sprigs of thyme, melissa, and fennel native to your father's homeland. I hope you like them as much as I do. It's a place where people can feel their feelings and start to relate to what is true for them. I'll read you one more that in some ways is more difficult. <clears throat> it's that time of year again for me to say my special hello. I feel so close to you when I am back here at the wall. When I see, feel, and touch your name on this black granite panel. Line 57, 23 West. I feel such pride for having known you for so many years. Many times I ask myself why you died and left me behind. I don't know. But I will always have the good memories, like the homecoming dance when you fell on your behind trying to impress me with what a good dancer you were. Remember they called you, me, and Jerry Lynn the three musketeers because when you saw one, you saw all three of us. Well, Jerry's name is down on panel 22 East, line 46. You two always did stick together, but you guys left me out this time. I know you're not lonely in heaven. You have Jerry and 58,476 other brothers and sisters whose names are on the wall with you. Remember till next year, I love you and I miss you. To live a life of awareness asks a lot of us. And it asks that we know ourselves and know our feelings and know our hearts. When I work with people and couples come in for couples therapy, a lot of their struggle is that they don't know themselves what they're feeling. Or if they do, they don't know it well enough to bring it into awareness and share it with another person. They get stuffed. We're unconscious, we act out of habit, we're busy. And to become aware is to listen inside, 
with integrity, to find our integrity to our actions, to our words, to our hearts. In his teaching, the Buddha put a great emphasis on feeling. In the teaching of the cycle of dependent origination that I taught last year and may do again this winter, which is the cycle of us getting lost in our actions in an unconscious way, the Buddha said that the place where we can find freedom is in relation to our feelings. Generally, we are unconscious and the mind moves. There are all these reactions of mind. When pleasant things arise, there's a pleasant taste, what do we do? We grasp to have more of that pleasure. When unpleasant things arise, quite unconsciously, the mind moves to resist it, to not feel it, to avoid it. And so we go through our life not very much in the present, trying to avoid a lot of things and trying to hold on to others even though they're changing, doing this dance, fearing certain things and grasping after others, and not so in touch with our hearts, with our bodies, with our breath, with this moment, with one another. We get caught like a puppet in that way. And the worldly winds keep changing. There are eight winds. Pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, gain and loss, praise and blame. Do you know them? <laughs> That's what our life is. Praise and blame and blame and praise and pleasure and pain and pain and pleasure and gain and loss and fame and disrepute. It changes. And when we're not conscious and not aware, what we do is react to each of these winds as they change. I like that, I hate that, I want more of this, I want less of that. And we're caught like a puppet, kind of automatically. To understand the law of karma, the law of change, is to be able to live wisely. First of all, the first part of karma is simply that things keep changing and that how we respond to them creates our future. What's in our hearts that motivates us creates how the future will be. For example, you can have a knife and cut someone. If you're a surgeon doing it and your motivation is to heal, you get a certain kind of karma. If you're a murderer using that knife, you get a very different kind of karma. It's not the action which creates what our future will be, but it's the intention in the heart and the mind. It is how our action is connected with us and where it comes from. All the peculiar questions people ask about karma. Well, what if you killed, killed somebody in order to save a whole lot of other people? Would that be good or bad karma? It would be what's called mixed karma, right? <laughs> but what really matters is what is your intention to do it? Do you think you could do that out of pure compassion? Or would there be hatred and aversion or fear in it? Because the states from which we act are what color our action and create the world around us. 
yet we act so much out of habit. In Buddhist tradition, again, it's said that the moment of death is a very significant one because it cre it's a moment that creates what may happen afterward. And there are four kinds of karma that are operative in the moment of death. If you want to learn a little Buddhist psychology tonight. They're called weighty, proximate, habitual, and random karma. Weighty karma means you did some really big deed in your life, like you killed somebody, or maybe even you killed a relative or someone very close to you. Or that's weighty bad karma. Or you had some very powerful awakening or enlightenment or, or some, some deep realization that came. That's weighty positive karma. And those things are so powerful that they tend to overshadow anything else at the moment of death. Then if that doesn't operate, the second one is proximate karma, which is to say that karma of what is going on, what's associated at that particular time. What are the circumstances? What's the, what's the uh, nearest uh, thing that's happened? So if you had a good day or a bad day and you're not very mindful, that will influence your death moment a lot. What's around that time? The third is habitual karma, and this is the one that operates most frequently. What's your mental habit? If your habit is to be loving, that's likely to happen when you're dying. If your habit is to be angry, that's likely to happen. If your habit is to be fearful, that's likely to happen. If your habit is to be able to uh, move with change gracefully, that's likely to happen. And then the last is called random karma. If none of these are operating, then it's just one karmic moment out of your, your storehouse. The image, the metaphor that's used is of cows. This may help you. The Buddha used a lot of agricultural metaphors, but the metaphor is this. Weighty karma is like the bull. You open the gate and everybody moves out of the way and the bull goes through because he's the biggest guy in the pasture. Um, proximate karma <coughs> is whatever, when you open the gate, whatever cow is nearest to the gate goes through. That may be so. Habitual karma is whatever cow is used to leading, you know, because cows go in certain order as well, and so it's whatever cow is generally the one to go back to the barn. And random karma is if there isn't a big bull and there's no habitual cow and there isn't one cow particularly close to the gate, then whatever cow happens to be nearby will go through the gate first. But what's most striking about all of these kinds of karma is how much they talk about our habit. That what we do and what we become is based a lot on our habit, our conditioning. And what awareness is about is the possibility of waking up and not living so asleep, not living so much from habit. Where's my curmudgeon book here? George Bernard Shaw. The trouble with him is that he lacks the power of conversation, but not the power of speech. <laughs> George Bernard Shaw had many other things to say about such things. 
so much of our life is on automatic pilot if we haven't cultivated awareness. And yet we can do it. We can really do it. It's not that complicated to listen to our body and its needs, or the food, or the climate, or our hearts, or the people around us. But it takes some practice. There's an art to it, and that really is the art of awakening, the art of meditation. And so you sit, it's called practice because it's a place to practice being aware so that then you can live it more fully in your life. And you sit and you watch your reactions, you watch the movements of mind, you feel the feelings. And you sit and something pleasant arises and there's, oh boy, I want more of that. Something unpleasant, I hope I can get rid of that, the knee's hurting, let me move a little, maybe I can get that to go away, stretch a little, get my body to feel more comfortable. And all of a sudden you find that your sitting is turned into kind of a therapeutic massage. And you're trying to get rid of all this stuff instead of just being aware. You watch the mind move. And in doing so, you learn this art of seeing what's here and feeling it without getting quite so caught in the habit of it. I remember doing a retreat where I was very, very still and I was paying attention to the moment of intention, the moment of wanting that would arise. And I was sitting there, I'd been sitting for a couple of hours, quite peaceful, and then I had to go to the bathroom, I had to go pee. So I was sitting and the, the uh, impulse rose, I have to get up and go to the bathroom. And I noticed it, I just noted wanting to pee, wanting to pee or whatever, just labeled it. And I watched it and because I was very still, it came, it was there for a little bit and then it disappeared. And so I continued to sit and sat for another half hour. So then it came again, noted it again, watched it for a while and then I, because I was so still inside, it came and it went, there wasn't anything to do, I just watched it and it came and went. Then it came 15 minutes later. <laughs> then it came 10 minutes later. After it came a few more times, it was really clear it was time, and I got up. And it wasn't that I shouldn't have gotten up the first time at all, but simply I'm, I'm using this to illustrate that you can sit and begin to learn to actually feel a whole range of feelings, hunger and love and desire and sorrow and loss and grief and, and the beautiful things and really come in touch with them and know your heart and your feelings. And out of that awareness there comes the possibility of some wisdom. Ajahn Chah, my teacher, said usually it's like the kid in the candy store, our mind. It's not very awake, it's pretty unconscious. But when you've trained it, it's more like sitting at the bottom of a mango tree and the wind comes along and the mangoes drop down and you're wise enough to know this is a good mango and that's a rotten one and that one has a worm in it and that's a really ripe, delicious one. Because you take the time to listen, you can begin to tell that which is skillful or that which is nourishing or that which, which is alive for you. It actually brings in aliveness. Wisdom comes, understanding, living wisely, comes through this cultivation of awareness.
it's really pretty simple. Spiritual practice is not very complicated. It doesn't require a special costume. It doesn't require a lot of special rituals, although rituals can be very beautiful. It doesn't involve some exalted states of mind, necessarily. It's really knowing where we are and listening. And through that, wisdom comes. If we learn to pay attention and feel what's in us and and understand through that attention what goes on in our hearts and our, our actions and our motivations. So I ask you some questions in your meditation or, or for, your, for your life if you want to work with it. Start to listen and see what motivates you most of the time when you speak. Is it communion? Is it love? Is it compassion? Is it wanting to share? Is it loneliness? Is it boredom? Is it nervousness? Is it fear? What is it? Just listen enough. What is there that motivates you as you eat, or as you do your work, or as you interact with people around you? Just begin to pay attention and listen. And listen as well, pay attention to the eight worldly winds, and see during this week, or month, or year, but take this week if you like, see if you don't notice, because you look, how quickly praise and blame, and pleasure and pain, and gain and loss change for you, even in the course of a day or an hour. And then see how much it moves the mind around, or whether you can also find a place that feels all those things, but instead of reacting to them, can be a bit more centered and respond from the heart rather than being caught up in reaction. To do that is to learn to let things go a bit to not follow every habit, but to become a little stiller and a little more awake and a little more centered in your your heart and in your being. And you'll find if you do it, it makes for greater happiness in your own life. The people around you will appreciate it quite a bit, no doubt. And it might even have a salutary effect on the world beyond your smaller community. In the gospel story where the apostles get trapped in that sudden and wild storm on the Sea of Galilee, there's a lesson for those who wish to find peace for the world today. When the waves first rose and the boat began to rock, the apostles worked hard and with hope in order to survive the storm raging around them. But then they lost heart and allowed the storm outside to come inside. It's easy to imagine the apostles as frantic, disconnected, out of control. In their desperation, they waken a peaceful Jesus who questions their faith and calms the storm by projecting his inner stillness, his inner harmony, and his inner peace. Sometimes, Even we peacemakers are more like the apostles and have allowed the destruction and terror of the world around us to become a part of us 
Too often we worsen the situation by projecting our own fear or guilt or despair. What we might do instead is become like Jesus, to have that still center that nothing can disturb. In that way, we become true peacemakers, persons who project peace wherever we go. questions or thoughts or comments or whatever you like, please. Yeah. Did everybody hear the question? She said she's pretty good at identifying her feelings, but then they last a long time when she gets caught up in the content. This is a very useful question, because the, the content which you talk about, one could also call the story, right? And the story, in some ways, is the thought rather than the feeling. When I said feelings don't last very long, I meant the emotion, the mood, and this physical sensation that come with it. The story goes on <laughs> for a long time. In fact, you will find that the story will go on as long as you want to play it. <laughs> What's useful then, and you probably know this to some extent having practiced with it, so I'm not going to tell you anything new, is to begin to make a difference or to distinguish in your attention between the story and the feelings as they're felt as an emotion and as a sensation in the body. What's a common feeling for you? Uh, sadness. sadness. And then a story comes with it? What's a hard one then? Where do you, you get stuck in anger? Yeah. Liking to be right, for one thing, helps with that. At least I, I do. I don't know about you all. But. <laughs> uh -huh. So there's he did and she did and so forth, and then and there's the anger. If you can begin to pay attention to the feeling of the anger itself, what does it feel like in the body? What is it hot? Is there contraction? What does it do to the breath? If you can feel its quality in the mind, it's like a certain color dye in the water. It flavors it, and maybe it's fiery, or it, it, it makes the mind jumpy or restless, or just see what it does. If you can pay attention to that, you'll notice a lot of things. You'll learn. One thing that would be helpful maybe would be to give it its name, angry or anger, anger, and just label it as long as it's there. If you get into the story of it, the story will go on for a long time. And when you notice in that moment, you realize, boy, I've been in the story. 
at that moment say, okay, enough of the story for the moment. Let me feel it in the body and let me feel its quality. And when you do, one of the interesting things that happen with anger is you feel how unpleasant it is. The story is a little bit pleasant, actually, or it can be, especially if you're right and they're wrong, <laughs> which is almost always the case, right? There's some pleasure in that, some righteousness in it. But the actual experience of the anger is rarely pleasant. I'm not saying it's bad or you should even get rid of it, but what you find is that it's not so pleasant, and there comes in the attention to it an understanding of its pain, and sometimes through that, there's just a really natural letting go of it. Other than your body? Besides feeling the sensations in your body? Have you ever experienced feeling a feeling that's not just the physical component of it? There's a kind of emotion that you can feel in the mind or the heart. Okay, then feel it there as well, not just physically. You might be sad. There's, you know, your face and eyes will feel the sadness or your heart might feel heavy, but also there's a whole flavor or quality to sadness itself. See if you can feel not just the physical sensations, but the, the color or the flavor of it in some way. It's, it's useful in practice to do a little bit of reflecting of what of the different mind movements, of what are the different changing conditions, are the ones that most catch you up. Where are the places you most get lost? For you, perhaps, it's anger. For someone else, it might be a different state. It might be fear, or it might be uh, sadness, or it might be hunger, or whatever. And that becomes a very interesting place to work in your practice. It's a place that a great deal of freedom can be found, but it's hard. It means you really have to look. And what is it like in the body? What is the quality like? And, and working with labels or naming it can be very helpful in that process. Please. When you were speaking of uh, the four kinds of death, the four Well, all I can say, I, I, I don't really know, but I, I can refer just to the moments of experience I've had where I thought I might die, like when the car was going off the road and I thought, whoops, this is it, you know. And most people have had certain moments like that. Having had those moments arise since being a monk and doing a lot of years of meditation practice, I've noticed that they are quite different than the moments before that practice. And now when that starts to happen, there's this, a quality that comes more often of, wow, here we go, it's time to let go, time to really just be open. And that wasn't my reaction before. It used to be much more of fear or panic or regret and so forth. So that I'm not sure that the question of sudden or long, drawn-out death is so critical. I think what's more useful is how we have learned to be aware. Of that sudden, I don't think it happens that quickly. 
doesn't doesn't appear to. No. I mean, for one thing, even if you have a heart attack, you, you're still alive physically even for some minutes. It's not, it's not instantaneous. But even if it's an accident and it's instantaneous, I don't know. I just have such a sense of process. Uh, truthfully, I can't answer you. I can just speak from my experience. But what's important to know when we talk about questions of death is that, in truth, we're dying all the time. You go to sleep and you die, and you wake up and it's a new day. You have a new relationship and it's born, it ends and it dies. And when you sit and pay attention, each breath, each moment, each feeling is born and it dies. You're constantly changing. And the question is, how aware can we be or mindful of this process of birth and death and all the changes that come with it, the pleasant and the painful and the gain and the loss, do, are we constantly reacting, or is there a place of freedom, a place of compassion, a place of openness that we've begun to nourish in ourselves? And that's what meditation practice can do. Anyone else, please? Yes. Ah, I said they pass. I didn't say they won't come back. <laughs> and not only that, sometimes they can pass away, and something worse will come. You're sitting there, and you feel afraid, and you're willing to pay attention to it, and you note fear, fear, and you try to make your peace with fear, fear, fear. Maybe six, eight, ten times, and you're a little scared, and then the fear goes away, and you realize instead there's terror. And it's worse. It's not, you're not afraid anymore. You're terrified. And there's a whole new feeling and a new set of thoughts that go with it. So it can, get, it can go all different directions. But what happens as you pay attention, even in that, is you start to feel it as a very alive, dynamic process rather than you're stuck in it. Even when fear turns to terror, turns to depression, turns to anger turns back to fear again, or whatever, if that's the sequence you observe. If you really pay attention, you feel its very aliveness. And in that, it releases you from being caught in just one part of it. It starts to open you up. And you start to relate to it, again, with some wisdom. Please. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's odd times that when I get to that you know, get down to the bottom of what they really were, then it all goes away. What's what's often what do you often find at the bottom? What kind of bottom? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean the bottom? Well you said when you get down to the bottom of things, they'll go away. What do you often find? Yeah, what kind of things do you, 
What kind of things do you find down there as the causes for those feelings? Fear of the unknown. Being out of control or not knowing. Uh huh. It's a useful question. Sometimes it's it's really helpful to reflect. In meditation, there's a whole class of reflective meditations. If something's coming and it repeats itself a number of times, it's a signal that something needs attention, and then you can reflect. And sometimes, in doing so, you're able to let go of it. That's very skillful. However, sometimes you can reflect and know damn well the cause of it. He did that, and, or she did that, and I know why I'm sad or angry or whatever. And you know it, at least on, on one level you know it pretty well. But it still comes anyway. And in some ways that will often repeat a grieving or a loss or injustice or something like that may repeat in part because it just hasn't been felt enough. It hasn't been accepted in a deep and full way. So your question is useful, and sometimes that reflection is helpful. No, you. If it repeats often, you can do some reflection, or you can ask yourself this question: What have I not accepted? If you want to ask yourself a good question, in in changing in your experience, what is it that's true? That's that's just the fact that I have not accepted. And very often the answer will show itself right away. And with a poem from Kabir and then a few announcements, actually from Rumi, from the ruins of the heart. Both the rose and the thorn appear together in spring, and the wine of the grape is not without its headaches. It all comes together. Pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, birth and death. Do not be an impatient bystander on this path. By God, there is no death worse than expectancy. Set your heart on hard cash if you are not counterfeit and listen to my advice if you are not a slave of habit and other such things. Don't falter on the horse of the body. Go lighter on your feet. Let go of your worries and become completely clear-hearted like the face of a mirror that contains no images. When it's empty of forms, all the forms are contained within it. If the coarseness of metal can be polished to a mirror-like finish, what polishing does the mirror of the heart require? If you want a clear mirror, behold yourself. When it's empty of forms, all forms are contained within it. Behold yourself and see the wondrous truth which the mirror reflects.